Christianity now, I think, is the only religion which is truly global and truly multicultural. If you think about other religions, for, for instance, if you, if you go into a Sikh Gurdwara, there, there are lots of Sikhs around the world, but uh, in their Gurdwara, in their temple, you step into a world of one particular culture. Or uh, <coughs> go into the, uh, um, the house of uh, our Buddhist friends next door to the, to the, uh, to the church building. And you'll find that uh, you step into the world of Tibet. Go into a mosque. You will find uh, Middle Eastern culture, Arabic spoken. But go into a church and you will find, um, uh, although there are common recognisable elements of churches throughout the world, singing, um, Bible reading and so on, that every church in every culture where it, where, where it is truly living for Christ, it is uh, expressing itself within that local culture. How did that happen? Well, that's the big question that we've been pursuing as uh, we've <coughs> looked at the career of the, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts how uh, an, an ancient Middle Eastern faith focused on one nation should actually become a global faith for all nations. It's a very, very important question for us as well. Important for us as a church. If the, if the gospel is going to thrive in East Oxford, it must cross cultural barriers. This, uh, this place is a place full of cultural barriers. It's important for, for us as individuals as well because uh, we're going to learn this morning we only really understand with clarity what it means fundamentally to be a Christian, how fundamentally we are transformed as Christians and made into the likeness of Christ when we can distinguish, in fact, the cultural specific elements of how we express ourselves as Christians and the universal, transcultural reality which is uh, the heart of the Gospel. And uh, Acts 15, Acts 15 is the, is the moment in the history of the church when the crunch really comes in the progress of the, uh, of the Gospel. Was the early church really going to become a global phenomenon expressing itself in lots of different cultures or was, it, was, was, the, was the church in fact going to be um, just a set of outposts of one particular Middle Eastern culture? Was the gospel, the good news about Jesus, going to really break free? Or was it actually going to be trapped? All that comes together at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, we uh, see uh, in verses 1 to 5 there a conflict. It had been rumbling on for some time. Uh, 
uh, Christians uh, um, from Gentile background had first really started to be integrated into churches which, were, uh, which had Jews as well in the city of Antioch. And some Jews had been distinctly worried about the things that were starting to happen there. It's actually possibly the reason um, why early on in the Apostle Paul's uh, um, evangelising ministry, one of his assistants, John Mark, left him. We find that uh, John Mark left uh, Paul um, shortly after they'd been on the island of Cyprus when a, a prominent Gentile called Sergius Paulus got converted. You can read that a couple of chapters further back in Acts. There's no indication that he was required to embrace any Jewish customs and some people suggest John Mark was disgusted by that. Whether that's true or not, clearly there are starting to be rumblings in the church, especially amongst Jewish Christians. The uh, uh, Jerusalem leaders of the church were delighted that Gentiles were becoming Christians in various parts of, uh, of the world and following Christ. They had no problem about that. But they were absolutely clear Christ was the Messiah of the Jews. Surely then, these Gentiles, as the Old Testament seemed to anticipate, should be incorporated into the Jewish family of faith. And in many situations where uh, uh, churches were dominated by Jews, of course it was, it was entirely natural that, that, that Gentiles should uh, adopt fundamentally Jewish uh, practices. But was that always going to be necessary? Was it a requirement of becoming a Christian that you had to embrace a fundamentally Jewish way of life. All that comes to our head here in Antioch. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Why, why were Paul and Barnabas so opposed to this? Well, there were, two, there were two related reasons. One was, as, as we've already indicated, it would trap Christianity in one culture, the culture of Israel. But Paul saw something, a deeper problem as well. He actually saw that trapping it in one culture would deny the gospel. In the book of Galatians, he actually explains much more to us. Galatians was almost certainly written um, while Paul was uh, um, walking from Antioch up to Jerusalem for the great council that makes the centrepiece of, uh, of, of Acts chapter 15. Paul uh, explains then, writes off this letter and sends it off to churches beyond Antioch where... Uh, uh, in, in, in the province of Galatia that he'd uh, evangelised earlier to explain to them why he is so concerned about this teaching unless you are circumcised you cannot be saved. And he says in one sense circumcision is neither here nor there. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 15 for instance he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. 
Now the automatically dangerous about the circumcision in Acts chapter 16 verse 3 just across the page there you'll find uh, Paul circumcising Timothy we'll see the reasons for that uh, next week the problem was if circumcision was required for salvation because you see then their salvation would not rest on faith in Christ. A key phrase, you see, from these people from Judea is unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And Paul is so firmly opposed to that teaching about circumcision that he says to the Galatians mark my words I Paul tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised Christ will be of no value to you at all Galatians chapter 5 verse 2 the key question then that he had to establish is are we saved through faith in Christ or are we saved through certain works that we perform? And if circumcision gave the people any indication that they might be saved through some works that they performed rather than trusting Christ, then it was to be avoided like the plague. I wonder what is dangerous for us. I wonder what, what modern teaching is uh, dangerous for us in, in that way. Um, um, unless you conform to a certain culture, you cannot be saved. Unless you sing Matt Redmond songs, you cannot be saved. Unless you become middle class, you cannot be saved. Unless you become an intellectual, you cannot be saved. Unless you stop smoking, you cannot be saved. Unless you become politically left-wing, you cannot be saved. Sorry, George Bush. There's so many things, aren't there, that we tend to put into that gap. You see, actually, even issues of basic Christian obedience can take the wrong place in our understanding. The Bible is passionately committed to, uh, to, to uh, us living morally pure lives. But uh, we embrace moral purity because we have trusted Christ for forgiveness. Not in order to be forgiven. The only thing, says Scripture, that we can put in that gap is unless you trust Christ for forgiveness, you cannot be saved. This big question then looms as Paul and Barnabas come to Jerusalem was the Jerusalem church going to accept that or actually was it in its, in its zeal to, and an understandable zeal to try to help people to live good lives 
Was it actually going to say, no, you are saved through trusting Christ and obeying the law? Not long after they arrived, the discussion becomes focused on that particular issue. Verse 5, And some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The conflict has come to a head. Peter it is who becomes instrumental though in clarifying a conviction. A conviction that is vital and central to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Actually Peter had had a long history of uh, um, uh, deliberating about these things. He had uh, uh, had a vision which was recorded in Acts chapter 10 where God had accepted people without requiring them to conform to Jewish practices. Most particularly Peter had seen a man called Cornelius a Gentile had seen the Holy Spirit come upon him had seen him transformed without him having to embrace all the uh, laws of Israel without him having to be circumcised. Peter himself had had his devils on this subject in Galatians chapter 2, we, uh, Paul describes uh, one particular rebel that Peter had. But by this time, Peter has come to some central, vital conclusions that we need to understand as the church became a global faith. Verses 7 to 11, Peter describes what he has learned. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. A whole series of things uh, Peter says here. That he says, Christian faith is about our hearts, first of all. God knows the heart, he says in verse 8. Not external signs of obedience, but an internal transformation in our hearts that makes us a Christian. It is about the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. God showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, he says in verse 8. Again, no, nothing that they did. No, 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 no conformity that was required on them before. God poured out his Holy Spirit on these people who heard the good news. Absolutely crucially though, Peter says it is about being purified by faith. Did you notice verse 9? He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. That's the nub of it. You see, those who were worried about about, uh, whether they were circumcised or not were essentially worried that these Gentile Christians would uh, somehow um, become uh, morally impure Christians. And so they said, look, 
here's the way to sort it out. We've got a long history of lots of good moral laws that uh, people should obey and surely they, they should, uh, we should require that of them as a mark that they are Christians. And Peter says, no, the mark that they are Christians is faith in Christ. And they will be purified by that faith. Indeed, the law never managed it. Verse 10, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? <laughs> if, they, if they were honest with themselves and honest with their history, they knew that actually just imposing laws as uh, uh, essential for salvation never worked. Christian purity is something far more radical than a set of rules. It is about a purity of heart that comes through faith. We fall in love with Christ and that purifies us. We see what Paul calls us where the glorious riches of God's inheritance in the saints and that purifies us. We, we learn to long for God and all he offers for us in Christ and that purifies us. We learn to long for the new heaven and the new earth where there is no longer any curse, where there are no more tears and that purifies us. In fact, we are purified by what the ancient divines used to call the expulsive power of a greater affection. We come to love God more than our sins. And that purifies us in a more profound way than obedience to rules ever will. John Piper, you've had a lot of John Piper this morning. Uh, uh, John Piper, in his excellent book, uh, uh, Future Grace, says this, Every act of obedience to Christ is a work of faith. The aim of all biblical instructions is love from sincere faith. Abel and Noah and Abraham and Rahab were empowered for obedience by faith. Sanctification is by faith in the truth. The whole law of God was meant to be pursued, not as though it were by works, but by faith. And setting up, you see, some form of conformity is entirely artificial and takes people away from that central vital truth that faith in Christ transforms the heart more profoundly than anything else could. And says Peter, Christian faith is about grace. We believe, verse 11, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Obedience never saved anyone. It was Christ coming while we were still sinners and dying for us that saved us. This is the heart of the gospel, you see. This is the heart of the gospel that has transformed 
every single one of us who are here. We are saved because of a miracle God has done in our heart. We are, we are forgiven by Christ's pure, pure grace. We are made good by the purifying power of faith in Christ. To insist on any act of obedience... In the, in, in, a, in the way that says, unless you do this, you cannot be saved, says Scripture. Is to put the cart before the horse. Is to put obedience in the wrong place. Only faith in Christ saves us. And in different cultures, you see, that radical obedience to Christ um, that comes from faith will take slightly different forms and this was what Paul was battling for. They could not simply impose wholesale one set of uh, rules uh, uh, albeit not not a bad set of rules in in one sense to every culture. It had to be re-examined from the perspective of faith. It had to form its own expression in a new culture. Jerusalem had to let go and let these Gentiles explore faith in Christ and how that may purify them. We have a habit of not letting go, don't we? And sometimes, frankly, British missionaries in the past have, uh, have taken a whole cultural package rather than faith in Christ to, to other cultures. There's that old film, The Missionary, by, uh, in which Michael Palin goes off and um, sits all these little uh, African boys around in a circle and uh, has them chant the date of the Magna Carta. Point was made. But you see, we, we can do it locally, we can do it at home, we can do it here. We have to be so central and so clear about what we are offering to people. What we are offering to middle class people in Italy fields, to multicultural Cowley Road, to drug addicts and university lecturers, to uh, the homeless and, uh, and to businessmen. It is not a cultural package. It is not an easy set of rules by which you can uh, get yourself right with God. It is faith in Christ. It is the grace of Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And obedience will follow. This was Peter's conviction. This had to be a central conviction. for a gospel church. And then James, in verses 12 to 29, offers a compromise. Verse 19, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. That's died, Peter, because I can see there's no power, I think, if you want to work on that while we read the passage. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, 
from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James then offers a, a, a strategic compromise. The Gentiles will not be required to conform to Jewish practices but they will be asked to restrain themselves because, as James has put it, that Moses has been preached in every city from earliest, earliest times. James is saying it's not wise to unnecessarily antagonise the Jews in the wider world because, uh, partly, no doubt, because they were an important bridgehead for the Gospel. We know the Apostle Paul everywhere spoke to Jews first in those cities and often managed to establish churches because they were already sympathetic to the message of Christ. Partly, uh, no doubt, James wants to offer this strategic compromise for the sake of, 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 um, of unity amongst God's people. Not every Jew would be, would be able to cope with the liberty that these Gentiles seem to have to, to work out a righteousness which was deeper than just uh, obeying the, the moral law. So, uh, for the sake of um, uh, not causing unnecessary disunity in the church, this compromise is, is offered. It uh, seems to be aimed, you see, at certain particularly offensive things to Jews. Meat with blood in it was very offensive to Jews. Food polluted by idols was very offensive to Jews. He speaks of their sexual immorality here as well. It may have been actually particular elements of, of their sexual behaviour such as um, um, uh, some of the particular rules on who you couldn't, could and couldn't marry in the Old Testament that is being talked about here. Because certainly uh, the, the uh, wider issue of, of sexual um, morality is, is a universal one that Christians are called to. But perhaps not to every detail of what the Old Testament law requires. Well, James says, restrain yourselves, Gentiles. Okay, who, it doesn't matter whether blood, uh, meat's got blood in it or not. But perhaps... Um, uh, they should be restrained about it. Okay, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, it's ir- irrelevant whether meat has been offered to idols or not. Thank you, Peter. Maybe it's irrelevant whether, whether meat has been offered to idols or not. But restrain yourselves. This is clearly a temporary uh, um, restriction, a temporary compromise. There's no indication there. Um, that it continued for, for, for long. There's nowhere else in Scripture where it seems, to be, it seems to be mentioned. It's a compromise. Compromise that churches again and again have to go for. The songs we sing. Sometimes there will be um, uh, people who just can't cope with the liberty that uh, um, young Christians feel to have rock style songs. There are all sorts of different uh, um, factors in it implies we work out what the best compromise is. Crucially, as here, 
we need to have a compromise which does not cause offence in the wider world. common compromise that churches falsely opt for is a compromise with the most awkward Christians in the church. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do. James was concerned about the people in the synagogues outside the church and what they thought. We should be concerned in that way too. key thing though is we must be seeking to reach out beyond barriers to offer the gospel as an attractive option within our particular culture. We're trying to do that as a church. Every church of course has to, op- has to adopt a culture. You can't have this imaginary uh, um, culture-free church. Every church has to ask the questions to how to maintain unity and the attractiveness of that body of people to the wider world. We're experimenting at the moment with our evening service. We've called it the gathering. We've, we've made it actually much more culturally close to, to the, the culture, or at least of a large proportion of people in East Oxford, to explore what it might look like, what it might feel like. And we must never stop asking difficult questions about how to express ourselves, to hold those different truths together. Let me ask you two questions then from this passage. Three. We are to be uh, global Christians and a global church. Are you clear about what saves you? Faith in Christ. Are you clear about what makes you good. Not just obedience to a package of law, but the purifying power of faith in Christ. And are you committed to seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ crossing boundaries? Because It is the essence of the gospel that it must cross boundaries. It's the most exciting thing we could be involved in. Why not go on that perspective course to get a deeper grasp of God's great call for our lives?